Personal evangelism is difficult, and sometimes it's disheartening. I'm sure many of you can relate if you've ever tried to share the gospel with someone. Whether you're in the corner of the street or you're across your dining room table from someone and you're seeking to share the love of Christ with them, you face a, a variety of challenges. Some of those challenges is nervousness and fear and anxiety. You're trying to figure out what it is that you should say, how you should respond. You're thinking ahead to what it is that they're going to say, and all of that just happens in your head, let alone what's happening outside of you, how this person is acting, how they're sitting. You're, you're expecting what they might say. They might even be shooing you off or shutting you up, to put it kindly, because they don't want to listen to what you have to say. They might even change the subject. All of these things present challenges in personal evangelism, and they're all disheartening. But one of the most disheartening people to have a conversation with, in my opinion, is the person who says, I know Jesus, I'm a Christian, I go to church. Well, why is that disheartening, Caleb? Well, it's disheartening because the more you ask, the more you dig, the more you realize that this person doesn't actually know Jesus. Their lives are completely contrary to that very statement. This morning, we're continuing in our mini-series through 1 John with 1 John chapter 2. If you're using a Blue Pew Bible, you can find this on page 1021. So as you turn there, let me catch us all back up to speed on where we are. The purpose of John's first letter is for those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to know that they have eternal life. That's 1 John 5, verse 13. The Apostle John, if you don't know, is the author of five books in the New Testament. For context, the Bible is comprised of 66 books. 39 of those are in the Old Testament and 27 are in the New Testament. So John is actually the author of five in the 27 in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, which is his account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The book of Revelation, commonly mispronounced as Revelations, in which John records a vision given to him by God that would happen in the end time, and three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, each of which written to a different recipient. So here in the first letter, the Apostle John seems to be writing to a church, a body of believers whom he loves. And this church is undergoing a serious split, a severance, if you will, as there were apparently people who left from inside the church that were denying what we would claim is basic Christian doctrine. They were denying human sinfulness. They were denying the necessity of obedience to God. They were even denying, worst of all, who Jesus was. These people have rejected that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And in doing so, they're now preaching a false gospel. This makes them an immediate threat to the church. These antichrists are attempting to deceive others, to lead more believers astray with their message. So the apostle writes to them, for the sake of the purity of the gospel, for the sake of the souls of these saints, he wants to be explicitly clear about the distinction between the message they've heard from the beginning and the new message they're hearing now that's tempting them to disfellowship. It's threatening their relationship with one another and with God. In 1 John 1, John clarifies the message up front that fellowship with God begins with Christ, a relationship with Christ, and evidence of this fellowship reveals itself in our love for one another, our love for his church. Fellowship with God then is self-evident 
Which brings us to our text this morning. 1 John chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father, And the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us eternal life. I write these things to you so that those who are, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, 
abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I believe there are four key words, four imperatives that will help us walk through our text together today. Remember, obey, recognize, and abide. I chose these four because I believe John is calling these Christians, calling us to do these four things. So Lord willing, I'll unpack these as we move through the text. First, remember the Christ. Remember the Christ. John expresses his initial purpose for writing in, in one, chapter 1, verse 4, so that his joy may be complete. That is complete because this church, this gathering of believers, had fellowship with the apostle and with the Lord. The church was dear to the apostle's heart. That's obvious because he calls them my little children. We should assume that from the remainder of the letter, John as a spiritual father to them, he desires their welfare. He desires their perseverance in the faith. He doesn't want them walking in the darkness. He wants them to walk in the light because the God they know, he is light. So he expresses his second purpose in writing to them here in chapter 2, verse 1, not to be disconnected from his first purpose, but to clarify it further. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's already established in chapter 1. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Sin is darkness. So if you say you have a relationship with God, but you're living your life in sin, you aren't actually telling the truth. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We make God to be a liar, and the truth is not in us. John's point early on is that everyone sins. We all sin. But Christians, according to chapter 1, recognize their sinfulness. In fact, our understanding of our sinfulness leads us to confess those sins to the Lord. And when we confess our sins, we receive forgiveness and cleansing from Christ. So moving into chapter 2, we need to be mindful not to disregard what John is saying as a whole and who he's speaking to. If we disregard the apostle's context, who he's writing to, who it is that he's arguing against, we may end up in a position like John Wesley in church history who says that Christians achieve sinless perfection. Meaning in this life, we aren't tempted to sin anymore and we no longer sin if we know Jesus. Instead, we should remember the context that the apostle is seeking to protect these Christians from heresies. They were facing in the moment, and one of those heresies was the Antichrist's denial of their own sinfulness. In essence, they were saying, we know Jesus, but we don't sin like you. John says, no, Christian, if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. But the difference between their message of sinlessness and our message of our sinfulness is our assurance in Jesus. So here when John says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, he's saying, I expect you to walk in the light, not in the darkness. Then he continues, and I believe John is making two things clear. The same voice 
that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. I think he's saying two things. One, as Christians perpetually sin, we perpetually, continually confess those sins to God and we're cleansed. Not to walk in darkness again, not to continue in the sin that we confess, but to walk in the light. In other words, we confess and are cleansed and over time that sin can become less tempting. We can be less tempted towards particular things and particular ways. You start to see more victory over temptation and sin in your life. Yes, Lord willing, our temptations to sin progressively reduce as we walk closer to God, as we continually confess our sins to Him. They don't go away. We aren't perfect in the flesh, but we win more often. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. Secondly, in and of ourselves, in our bodies of sin, we cannot have fellowship with God. Therefore, left to ourselves, we have no hope because sin separates us from God, which means we can't look inwardly for assurance. We have to look outwardly. We have to look outwardly for hope, for someone else to bridge the gap between us and God. So where is that hope found? That hope is found in Jesus Christ. John transitions our focus here in verse 1 from our sin to our Messiah. The first step in remembering the Christ is to take your eyes off yourself and put them on Jesus. The second is to remember who he is. He says, if anyone does sin, if you sin, where do you look? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Christian, stop looking at your work as if your bad work is going to condemn you or your good work is going to save you and start looking to Jesus who paid the penalty you deserve for your bad work and accomplished all the good work you needed for salvation. This is the truth that John wants these believers to remember, to set their hopes on. No matter what message is thrown their way, no matter who comes and says they know Jesus, they need to remember this Christ, the Christ. There is no other Christ. Well, who is this Christ then? And what is he doing, you might ask? Well, first, Jesus is the Christ. This is significant. Jesus is the Christ. It's a common misconception that the word Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not his last name. It's not a proper name, but it's a title. It's a title given to him. Christ means Messiah. Jesus, therefore, is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Savior. For who? For us. He came to save us from our sins which separate us from God. And he came to reconcile us by his blood back to God. How did he do it? By a perfect life of obedience. His substitutionary death in our place, death for our sin. How could he do that? Well, second, Jesus is righteous. He's the Christ he is righteous. He alone is sinless. He is perfect. And he's not perfect simply because he's God in the flesh. Here, the author of Hebrews in chapter 5, he says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience 
through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus, friend, worked hard to obey. He was tempted in every way that we are, every way that we are, the scriptures say, but without sin. He did not sin. He earned salvation as the God-man, and he received it because he is righteous. And it's because he is righteous that he can be these two things. He's our propitiation and our advocate. Our propitiation, best definition of this, is that Christ himself is the atoning sacrifice for sins. He doesn't make sacrifice for us. He is the sacrifice. With the Old Testament in mind, think about all the language in chapter 1, like cleansing by his blood or forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't offer sacrifices over sins continually. He is himself the atoning sacrifice. The righteous one became sin so that in him we could be made righteous. And because Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin, he is able to be our advocate. He pleads our innocence before the Father. Listen, friend, when you and I sin, Jesus directs the Father's gaze to Calvary's hill where Jesus paid for our sins. He cleansed us of all of our guilt fully and finally there. And the Father looks on us with favor and love because he sees Christ's righteousness. He doesn't see our wickedness. He sees Jesus. Praise be to God for this. This is the Christ, the Christ we know, church. This is the Christ we proclaim, one who saves sinners and makes them righteous because he can do it. He can. John Stott summarizes this so clearly. When he says the father's provision for the sinning Christian, that's us, is his son who possesses a threefold qualification. We just talked about this. His righteous character, his propitiatory death, and his heavenly advocacy. This is the key thing. Each depends on the other. He could not be our advocate in heaven if he had not died to be the, to be the propitiation for our sin. And his propitiation would not have been effective if in his life and character he had not been Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Friend, it matters who Jesus is. It is in the person of Christ alone that we can have assurance that God knows us, that he loves us, that he's able and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and gives us eternal life as we see in verse 25 of our text. And this helps us to understand what John means in verse 2 when he says he is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What John is doing is he is assuring these believers of their salvation in Christ, that Christ actually did it. He accomplished it for them and they can trust him. It's only Christ. It could only ever be Christ. So I believe here it is not the inclusivity of the gospel, but the exclusivity that is in mind. John is not saying Christ paid for everyone's sins, so everyone is going to heaven. John is saying that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. It's only Jesus who can do that. There is no other way. 
There's no other means in the entire world that could reconcile you to God. Jesus is the only atoning sacrifice for the entire world. And he says as much, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John makes it clear that people who walk in the light know God. And people who walk in the darkness don't. So it was already exclusive before this verse. But he further defines that no matter where you go, Jesus is this Jesus. He's the only way, the only truth, the only life. So let me ask you this morning, friend, is this the Jesus that you know? The Jesus that we see in the scriptures, the Jesus that the Holy Spirit testifies to. If, if you say you know him, is this the Jesus that you think of? There's only one. There's only one. If you know this one, you can be assured of your salvation. But if the one you know is different than the one you see here revealed, then friend, come to him. Repent of your sins and come to Jesus. Salvation is a free gift from God to all who believe so you can come to him. And when you come to him, your life will change. Your life will change from the inside out. It'll change because God will give you a new heart and new desires. The heart you had before Jesus, the heart we all had, was bent on disobeying God, bent on walking in darkness continually. But the new heart he gives us by faith is a heart that wants to obey God because it loves God. As verse 3 says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Which leads us to the second imperative. Obey his commandments. Hear me when I say this, church. Riding on the wave of everything we just read and talked about with Christ-saving work, we need to hear this. Obedience to God, hear me, obedience to God is essential for the Christian's assurance of salvation. We should not expect to go to heaven if we do not obey God. Now let me clarify. We rightly take caution when we use language like obedience is essential. But we shouldn't be hesitant to state this claim because as Christians, based on Ephesians 2, we believe we're saved by grace through faith, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We reject the belief, the understanding that someone can earn their salvation by works. It's not possible. Faith is itself a gift from God, Romans 6.23. But we don't we want to hold a healthy balance between faith as a gift and faith evidenced by works, as we see in James 2. There's a healthy balance. So we do not say obedience is essential for salvation. That's works-based salvation. But with the Apostle John, we say obedience is essential for the assurance of your salvation. This is the Apostle's gauge. Is it not the, the measuring rod to determine your standing before God. Is it not in verses 3 through 6, keeping his commandments? Obedience? John says here with apostolic authority that you either prove you know God or don't based on your obedience to him. In the Gospel of John, John 3, 36, he writes, whoever believes 
in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we're saved by faith. But if you don't obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on you. Your deeds do not determine your destination. But hear me, church, your destination can be determined by watching your deeds. So for clarity's sake, what do, what do we do with obedience then? How do we think rightly about it? How do we hold it in this balance? How do we use obedience the way that John intends us to use it for assurance? Well, I think the nature of obedience as described in the first chapter leading into this one is fourfold. First, obedience completes your love for God. If you know him, you keep his commandments. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Notice that language, love of God is perfected. John uses similar language in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He also uses this language in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. It can be difficult for us to catch this meaning in English. And without getting into the weeds, the way these words work together in the sentence is not pointing to God's love for us, even though that's true, but rather pointing to our love for God. So to put it a different way, we could say we possess a love of God. So our love of God is being perfected through our obedience. Our love for him is being brought to completion. It's being perfected as we keep his word, as we obey him. The more you obey, the more your love for God grows. And the more your love for God grows, the more you obey. Therefore, obeying God's commands are essential for your assurance of salvation. Secondly, obedience is not new. John says it's an old command, but at the same time, it is new. So the Lord Jesus says the two greatest commandments, you guys remember this, are the love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22. These then were the old commandments because he says on these two commandments, all the law and all the prophets depend. So when John says, or when Jesus says he's writing a new commandment, John he is referring to Christ's words in John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So John is transitioning thought from a general command to love your neighbor as yourself to the new command for the believer to love his brother. A non-believer cannot do this. See the litmus test again? Last time we talked about the litmus test, walking in the light, walking in the darkness. You can see it again here, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. So loving your brother, loving other Christians, therefore is essential for your assurance of salvation. Do you love other Christians? Thirdly, obedience is possible because we know Jesus. Obedience is possible because we know Jesus. Before John gets much farther in, John wants these believers to pause. He wants them to know that all of this is possible because it's already true of them. You can love God. You can love your brother because you know Jesus. Our standing with Christ is the necessary fuel for continued faithful obedience to God. So John gives this church, gives us a crescendo of encouragement here. He says, little children, believers, he says, your sins 
are forgiven for his name's sake. Meaning as long as Yahweh is the Lord, they will never be counted against you. Does that encourage you this morning? As long as Yahweh is the Lord, your sins in Christ will never be counted against you. Yahweh will be Lord for eternity. I pray that encourages you. Fathers, he says, meaning older brothers and sisters in age, not necessarily in faith, but in age, as in 1 Timothy, when he says, address, uh, when he says uh, teach older men and, and teach them as fathers, younger men as brothers. He says that same thing here. Fathers, meaning older brothers and sisters, you know Jesus. You know the only Christ, the Christ that we've talked about, the Christ, the Savior of the world. You know that one. You know him. And that's encouraging. Young men, younger brothers and sisters in age, he says, you're strong. God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. What other encouragement do we need this morning to obey God? That we're strong, that he abides in us, that we've overcome the evil one. We've won, in essence. Therefore, we should obey. He encourages the whole church to faithful obedience by pointing them back to the Christ. Redeemer, remember him. You are strong. God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. This is true of us in Christ. Fourth, on obedience. Obedience to God leads to eternal life. In the context of verse 16, the word desires could be better translated lusts to get the full picture. These are wicked desires. So when you read lusts of the flesh, think a desire for temporary worldly satisfaction, the quick fix. It's mine and I want it now. Lust of the eyes. Think worldly mindedness. All that matters is what you see. And you don't mind if that's all there is. Finally, pride of life. Think the person who finds security in all their worldly goods and pleasures. As one commentator puts it, security in worldly things and wealth makes this person so prideful as to overlook their need for and dependence on God. They are so consumed with the world, they forget that they even need God. Friend, if you find yourself in one of these categories this morning, verse 17 tells us that the world is passing away along with its desires. If you, hear me, continue on the path you're on, you may find yourself reaping eternal consequences for your temporary pleasures. The believers in this room don't want that for you. We don't want that for you. If you recognize you're in one of these categories, find one of the people that you've seen up here this morning. Come talk to us. Come talk to me. I would love to talk to you about the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus, the forgiveness and the cleansing that you can receive if you trust in him. Verse 17 ends with assuring words yet again. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Some think God's a killjoy. He must make a bunch of rules and just bosses us around and he enjoys it. But the opposite couldn't be more true. Life itself is found in the Lord and those who do his will receive eternal life. It's a promise. It's the assurance again that drives the obedience. Here the command is not to love the world. What keeps us from loving the world? Remembering the Christ and obeying his commandments because those 
who do this abide forever. Forever is a long time. It's a long time. And forever is not too far away. This leads us to our third imperative. Recognize the Antichrists. Recognize the Antichrists. We're currently living in the last hour. If the Left Behind series didn't teach you anything else. The end times, we are living in them. The end times. And we have been living in the end times since the Lord conquered death. When he rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. We await for the consummation of his kingdom and the judgment of the world to come. Where the righteous and the wicked will be resurrected to judgment. The end, the end times is coming. It's getting closer and closer every day. And the evidence that John gives us here is the appearance of antichrists, plural. I do take John to mean here that antichrist, a proper name, a title given to an individual, will come, but he's not come yet. We don't know. He hadn't come at this time, but he's not come yet. According to Revelation 12 through 13 or 2 Thessalonians 2, this individual is coming at the very end. He is a deceiver, the man of lawlessness, one opposed to Christ himself. But take courage, church. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, Jesus kills him with the breath of his mouth. So it's obvious that this individual does not ultimately stand a chance against our Lord. And we praise God for that. But however... Until he arrives on scene, John warns us of an immediate threat. People he calls antichrists. In fact, so dangerous was their message that they occasioned this letter from the apostle. And we today can be thankful for the sovereignty of God in preserving this letter and bringing it to us for our protection against potential antichrists that we might come across. But what should we look for? According to what John says here, how can we spot them? Well, we learn three things about the Antichrist that John says. First, it might seem redundant, but we learn there are many Antichrists. It isn't just one individual that these Christians had to be on guard against. There were many, and with a multitude comes momentum. One person, easy to spot. You can stay away from that guy. Two, okay, yeah, we might need to be a little bit more on guard with everybody around. But what if there's 30 to 50 people who are trying to lead you astray from the living God? We don't know the quantity, but... The more there were, the more dangerous it was for the church. The more on guard the church had to be. The more on guard we have to be. Second, John says the Antichrist went out from us. Meaning these Antichrists weren't threatening the church from the outside at first. At one time they were inside. They were deceivers. Liars functioning like the archetype, the Antichrist himself. Deceiving to the point where they could gather with Christians. And they were hard to spot. They looked the part. They played the part. They sang the songs. They listened to the prayers. They went through the motions of the corporate gathering like everybody else. Thirdly, the Antichrist had a specific message. John says, who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. These people denied that Jesus was the Messiah. Digging a little further into the context of this time period, you'll find that the Gnostics were pushing this idea 
that Jesus and the Christ were distinct individuals. Jesus was a man, an anointed man, but the Spirit of Christ descended on him at his baptism for his ministry, and then he left, this Christ left him at the cross when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. I mention this because I want you to recognize it's a fundamental misunderstanding of our first point. Who is Jesus? Remember the Christ? I'm sure their arguments were lofty. I'm sure their speech was soothing to the ear. I'm sure these antichrists made a good effort at creating a case for why Jesus and the Christ were not the same person. But church, it's not the same Jesus. It's not Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. It's not Jesus the righteous, our propitiation, our advocate. Before the Father, the Antichrist bring a message of another Jesus who bears the name of Lord, but he is not the Lord. Be watchful. The reality is that the only way to spot the Antichrist is by their message. So what messages should we be aware of today, church? Do you see the spirit of the Antichrist at work around you, around us? Yes, we do. We see it at work in the church of the Latter-day Saints who come to you, sometimes your door, claiming to be Christians. But the Jesus they preach is an offspring of God like the rest of us, not God himself. And his death on the cross doesn't deserve, doesn't serve as an atoning sacrifice for your sin. You still have to work for salvation. We see it at work in the kingdom halls who come to you claiming to be Christians, but the Jesus they preach is a second God. The Trinity it's not logical, they say. It is better to say that the Father is one God, the Son is another, the Spirit is yet another. We see the spirit of the Antichrist at work in Islam as they continue to claim that Jesus was a great prophet, but he could never save you from your sin, only confessing that Muhammad and some monotheistic God would bring you salvation, not, not this Trinitarian baggage. Those are Antichrists. Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, are deceptive church. But John is not telling us that we have to become world-renowned apologists to stand for our faith, to stand in order to stand against the evil one. He tells you, verse 24, remember the Christ. If you don't know the Christ, you can't spot the Antichrist. So my challenge to you this morning, John's challenge is become a professional at the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel in a mirror. Write the gospel down. Practice the gospel. Recite the gospel. Memorize the gospel. Share the gospel with others. Know it so well that you can encourage other people with it. You can exhort other people with the gospel. And Lord willing, the message that you share, you can pray the Holy Spirit's conviction through the power of the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus. If you know the gospel message, the message you heard from the beginning, a.k.a. who Christ is and what he's done, you'll be able to spot the Antichrist from a mile away because you'll say, that's not Jesus. I know Jesus, and that's not him. Recognize the Antichrist. But there's no need to be afraid of them, church, if we do what the apostle tells us to do. That brings us to our fourth point. Abide in the message and the anointing. Abide in the message and the anointing. If you haven't noticed at this point, abiding has been the thread holding our text together. What is the secret to remembering Christ? 
Abiding. What is the secret to obedience? Abiding. What is the secret to recognizing antichrists? Abiding. The secret is to abide in the message you've heard from the beginning and abide in the anointing that you have received from Christ himself. So we know what the message is. But what is the anointing? In verse 20, it says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. The Holy One referencing Jesus. So Jesus has anointed us. The anointing is not Him per se, but something He has given to us. Okay? So what is this anointing? Church, the anointing is none other than the Spirit of the living God living in us. Our passage here makes perfect sense in light of what John has written in John 14, verse 16 through 17. He says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Christ has anointed us with the Holy Spirit, and He commands us to abide in the Holy Spirit. So to finish our time, what does the Holy Spirit do for us? And why should that encourage us? Well, let's look at some things. First, the Holy Spirit gives us all knowledge of the truth. Lies about who Jesus is and what he has done stand no chance against the Christian who possesses the spirit of truth that testifies in our souls to who Christ really is. God himself is teaching us from the inside. The prophet Jeremiah foresaw this. Jeremiah 31, 30, verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. John, in chapter 6, verse 45 of his gospel, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That is Jesus. Alongside the message the message of the gospel. Let's, let's broaden that out to the entire revealed will of God, the scriptures. The Holy Spirit gives us all knowledge. He illuminates our understanding of the scriptures. Maybe you this morning, maybe you have a testimony where you were a non-Christian and you started reading the Bible and it made no sense. It was all just black and white, made no sense to you at all. But then you came to Christ and all of a sudden the scriptures, they came to life. You started to see things you never did before, understand things you never had categories for as a non-Christian. That's the spirit of truth teaching you from the word of God. We ought to pray more for this church, that the spirit would illumine our minds so that we can understand his word, that he would continue to guide us in wisdom as we read his word, commit it to memory, pray through it, share it with one another. Number two, the Holy Spirit keeps you in the Son and in the Father. 2 Corinthians 1, the Holy Spirit is our seal and our guarantee of eternal life, Paul says. As the message of Christ abides in us, the anointing abides in us, and as we abide in them both, the Holy Spirit keeps us in relationship with the triune God. And this starts right now. This starts when you repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells you, and it lasts into eternity. Brothers, sisters, in Christ, you are in communion you are in fellowship with the living God. Have you considered the implications of this? Finite human beings who are now indwelled by the Spirit. And this Spirit is at work in us and through us. What better fuel for faithful obedience to God 
than God himself living in us and helping us to obey his commandments. What better fuel than the Holy Spirit given by God? Thirdly, the Holy Spirit abides in you. He does not leave you. Maybe you've been tempted to believe the lie that when you sin, God wants nothing to do with you. Or you think he just leaves you stranded in your sin. Friend, the Spirit of God makes permanent residence in the redeemed children of God. This seal cannot be removed. No one can take him away from you. Or you from him. No antichrist, no worldly lust, because you know him who is from the beginning. And this is for your perseverance in the faith. When you sin, what does the Spirit do? He convicts you and draws you back to Christ. When you ask for help, he provides it. When you ask for guidance, he gives it. He even keeps you in the truth. That's John's point. When he says, you have no need for anyone to teach you. Not that we don't have need for pastors and teachers. He says, you have no need for anyone to teach you, meaning you don't need someone to teach you about some other Jesus. Because you know the message. You have the anointing. The Holy Spirit abides in you, Christian, and keeps you in the truth. So abide in those two. You, abide in the message. Abide in the anointing. But to finish our time, how do we abide, church? We abide by walking in the light, obedience. We abide by remembering the Christ, by keeping his commandments to love one another, by recognizing the Antichrist and choosing to walk in the truth. We abide by loving and obeying. There is an inseparable connection between knowing Jesus and obeying his commands. So friend, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Let's pray.